0: Method and Madness is a true crime podcast dealing with events of violence that may be disturbing to some. Listener discretion is advised. A company gathers for a holiday party and training in San Bernardino, California, when two gunmen open fire in what would be a deadly mass shooting. This is Method and Madness, Episode 23, Mass Shooting in San Bernardino. I'm your host, Don Gandhi.
1: The body was dismembered.
0: A ransom note was discovered. Hiker stumbled upon the nude body of a local. The police are looking into the brutal slaying of a young there woman. There may be a clue in a released
1: nine-one-one call from the victim. Said she was stalked for five years.
0: Held captive inside a storage container. It was a twisted mix of obsession and revenge. No weapon has been located.
1: Shot while asleep in their beds. And revenge.
0: Method and madness. It's hard to even comprehend. You're at a work event, maybe checking the clock to count down the minutes until you get to leave. One moment you're seated in a chair chatting with your coworker, grabbing a sandwich from the spread of potluck dishes, or doing something as mundane as checking your phone for emails. The next moment you're huddled under a table praying you don't get hit by a bullet using that same chair as a shield and texting your family that in case you don't make it out of there you love them it's a nightmare that became a violent reality for the employees of the San Bernardino County Public Health Department let's dive in it was December 2nd 2015 at the Inland Regional Center a nonprofit center for those with disabilities located at 1365 South Waterman Avenue in San Bernardino, California, a city with a population of approximately 215,000, located about 60 miles east of Los Angeles. The day was that perfect Southern California weather, sunny and mid-70s on that Wednesday morning. About 80 employees of the San Bernardino County Public Health Department, civil servants, were attending a training-slash-holiday party that day at a conference room they had rented in Building 3. It was known as their annual gym meeting, where the employees gather to celebrate those that have been promoted and to hand out awards. The plan was to do some training and then celebrate the upcoming holiday season and their accomplishments for the year. The conference room walls and tables were decorated for the holidays. There was a Christmas tree adorned with ornaments, and the employees were dressed up for the occasion. It was just before 11 a.m. A technical issue occurred with the training portion of the event, and so everyone took an unscheduled break, heading to get food, off to the restroom, socializing, or looking at their phones. Some employees were gathered together in front of the Christmas tree to snap a few photos. From outside, the sounds of pops were heard, which some thought were fireworks. Suddenly, the door to the conference room opened and someone entered from the outside, dressed all in black, wearing a ski mask. Without saying a word, they held up a gun and began firing it at the attendees. Then, another shooter entered, also all in black, wearing a mask. Some thought it looked like a woman, due to their tight clothing and the gait of their walk. They started shooting too. One of the attendees shouted for everyone to get down. Some people froze, unsure if what they were seeing was real. They thought it may have been a role-play scenario, like an active shooting training, which the company's employees had taken. Ironically, training they'd taken in that same conference room not long ago. But in those moments, there's no telling what your brain will prompt you to do. After realizing it wasn't a drill, people started doing what they had learned in the training and ran for safety. Active shooter training advises that if you're ever in this scenario, to run if it's safe to do so. If not, hide. And if you can't run or hide, fight. Just five minutes prior, co-workers Shannon Johnson and Denise Peraza were sitting at a table talking and joking with each other. Now, with rounds of bullets being fired into the room, the two were huddled under that same table with Shannon guarding his friend Denise, his arm around her. I got you, he told her, as they used a chair to shield themselves from the gunfire. Denise felt a bullet in her lower back and realized she'd been hit. She pulled out her phone and quickly texted her family, not knowing if she'd make it. Quote, love you guys, was shot. Denise survived and credits Shannon as her hero. He did not make it. 31-year-old Amanda Gaspard, an environmental health specialist, was underneath a nearby table. She closed her eyes and lie still. She could hear the rounds being fired around her, and suddenly a gunman was right over her. She was shot in the lower arm, thigh, and knee, and was wounded by shrapnel. She survived that day with a long recovery ahead of her. Those who could ran for cover. They rushed toward a door on the opposite end of the building. One of the gunmen's bullets hit a sprinkler system in the ceiling, causing it to rain down on the large conference room. Then the fire alarms began wailing loudly, adding to the chaos. Julie Swan Paez, a health department inspector, had been excited to be there that day. She was going to be awarded with Employee of the Year. She was shot in the abdomen and thigh. Her pelvis shattered. She lay on the floor bleeding, texting her family that she loved them. She survived. Those who had run out of the conference room found shelter in an adjacent room or bathroom where they locked themselves in. They hid in cabinets and closets. Many ran through the building until they got to an exit door. Anise Kondoker, a 42-year-old environmental health specialist, was exiting the restroom and entered the hallway just as two bullets whizzed over her head. She was shot three times and survived. Patrick Bakari A 55-year-old retired Air Force Reserves medic was in the restroom, standing in front of the paper towel dispenser, when suddenly bullets pierced through the wall, blasting sheetrock dust and shrapnel from the dispenser into his face. With blood pouring down his face, he dropped to the floor, and along with another man, they pushed the bathroom door shut and held it closed with their feet. It kept them safe. One employee Came face to face with one of the masked assailants and they made eye contact. The shooter then turned and shot someone else before moving on. From inside the building, several calls came into 911.
1: The shooter here. Okay, ma'am, listen to me. Take a deep breath. Have you seen the person with the gun? Yeah, they're there. They're fucking dressed in black. Okay, listen. Okay, gun. listen. I know, ma'am. We're on the way. Okay, is he still shooting?
0: Oh,
1: my God.
0: Did you see people with the gun? Yeah,
1: they're wearing all black.
0: Can you see them anymore?
1: No. I'm on the floor.
0: Okay, stay on the floor.
1: Is he still shooting? <laughs> I don't know. Okay,
0: how many rounds did he fire oh my god a million an administrative lieutenant mike madden got a call from dispatch that shots were heard in the area and he began driving in the direction of the inland regional center it took him less than four minutes to arrive and just as he did dispatch came across the radio saying that more callers had reported that there was an active shooter situation and that the shooter or shooters were still on the scene He wasn't sure exactly where in the compound the shooting was taking place. It was large, with three interconnected buildings. He pulled up near the south end of the building. It turned out to be a lucky guess. Three more officers responded shortly after as backup, before all four of them went in. In one of the buildings of the compound, a nurse, Dorothy Vong, was looking out the window, unaware of the deadly situation that was going on in the nearby building. She recorded the police response on her cell phone, noting out loud that there were officers arriving with rifles. She assumed it was an active shooter drill. Outside the building, the officers came across a woman who had been fatally shot. She was on the ground, right outside the doors. A man was seated on a nearby bench, shot dead, his cell phone still in his hand, and another man seated at a picnic table eating, had also been fatally shot. The officers moved into the building and surveyed the scene. The room was dark and the stench of gunpowder was in the air. They could hear the cries for help, moans of those in pain or calling out to get assistance for a colleague. Everything was wet from the sprinkler system going off, and the fire alarm was blaring. One officer said of the initial walk into the scene, quote, We have all seen people that have been shot before, but those rounds were devastating to people. These were good people, dressed up, just trying to do their job. The four officers described the room as looking like a bomb had gone off, bodies across the floor, and victims with very serious wounds. Nobody knew if the attackers were still there in the building, lurking somewhere, or if there were more of them. There was no sound of gunfire anymore, but was there more terror to come? Some people were still hiding, too scared to come out from under the tables. Others grabbed at the legs of the officers as they walked past, desperate for help. People were screaming, dying. Bodies were laying near the Christmas tree, where a small group of people had been posing for photos before the massacre began. One officer yelled out, quote, anyone who can move, leave immediately and find cover behind vehicles. The four officers knew, though, that their job, first and foremost, was to find and stop the attackers. They literally had to step over the bodies and the scared employees to continue securing the building. As the officers walked through the halls, they came across more employees frightened and hiding. The walls and floor streaked in blood and people too scared to come out for fear that these weren't the real police. Survivors emerged from an elevator trembling. The still-present smell of gun smoke indicated that the shooters may still be there, and nobody in the building could confirm exactly how many shooters there were. As they continued their search for the assailants, around 11.09, only minutes after the attack occurred, Two SWAT teams arrived to clear the building, a difficult task given how many doors were locked. They kept their guns pointed at the rooms that had been cleared, just in case. The FBI also arrived to assist in the search for other weapons like explosive devices. By 1117, the first floor was cleared and secured. Closets, cabinets, bathroom stalls had been searched and researched. No shooters were located. They had left the building. Inside a conference room, a suspicious-looking black bag was found. The building was evacuated, and the bomb squad found three bombs inside the bag. Investigators say this is a practice by terrorists to detonate the bomb while survivors are being treated at the scene. The bomb squad searched the rest of the building and officially cleared it. The device had not been detonated. A security guard inside the building confirmed that he'd seen the two shooters flee just minutes after the shooting had begun. He described the vehicle that the two gunmen had left in. It was a black SUV. Turned out, the gunmen had only spent about three minutes in the building. The injured were ushered by the security guard, firefighters, and by officers. Some had to be carried out to a triage area that had been set up where medical personnel From several different agencies had arrived outside to help. Many of the victims were soaking wet from the sprinklers, making it harder to treat their wounds. Ryan Starling, a firefighter and medic with the SWAT team, assessed the wounds of those that had been injured. He marked the bodies of the dead with white tape. One woman was found hiding between two cars in the parking lot, with a wound to her leg and one to her arm. She was treated at triage and survived. A total of 24 wounded people were triaged. Of those 24, two of them died. And the survivor's guilt was already setting in with several people wondering why or how they made it out okay. Ambulances pulled up as if on a conveyor belt, transporting the wounded to hospitals. Of the 22 people that were transported to hospitals they all survived. But 14 people lost their lives that day. The San Bernardino County Coroner's Office set out to notify the families of the deceased, notifications that were done in person. Sadly, it was a grim confirmation to some family members who were glued to the news and had been unable to get in contact with their family members, and they just had a feeling. The uninjured were led to an area on a nearby golf course where they cried, hugged each other, and called loved ones. They were in disbelief and couldn't begin to understand how they'd be able to return to work, how they'd be able to see the empty cubicles. They were interviewed by law enforcement, and a narrative of the events began to take place, along with descriptions of the suspects. One employee, while interviewed, talked about how he had been seated next to a co-worker a county environmental health specialist who had arrived at the event that morning but was acting a little weird. He had gotten up and left abruptly, his jacket still on the back of his chair. And around a half hour later, the first shooter burst in. The witness said his first thought was that the gunman was that same co-worker that had been acting weird. And that coworker was named Rizwan Farouk. The officer taking the statement placed a call, and everyone in the San Bernardino area that had that name was run through the system. A few names came up, and police were dispatched to the addresses of anyone with the name Rizwan Farouk. Other employees that were interviewed described a vehicle that may have been driven by the gunman, a black SUV just like the security guard had seen the suspects leaving in. News outlets were reporting on the breaking news and alerting the public to be on the lookout for an SUV that matched that of the suspect's getaway vehicle. And with the two gunmen on the run, classes at nearby universities and other schools were canceled out of caution for the rest of the day. Calls began coming in, people reporting that they had seen a vehicle matching the description. There was also a black SUV similar to the one being described that had been seen in the area of one Rizwan Farooq's residence in nearby Redlands, a city in San Bernardino County. One witness had memorized the license plate. A dispatcher ran that license plate through the system, and it came back to a rental agency. Upon contacting the rental agency, it was discovered that the black SUV had been rented by a man named Rizwan Farooq.
1: I'm Paige, the host of Reverie True Crime. I tell stories of helpless victims, vicious killers, predators watching their prey before they strike, survivors, petty crimes, people we think we know who do the unthinkable, and the dangers that lurk not only in the dead of night, but in plain sight and the light of day. Every once in a while, I'll also tell stories of the frightening paranormal, elusive cryptids, haunted locations, and conspiracies that may be silly or thought-provoking. You can listen to Reverie True Crime wherever you're listening to this podcast. Feel free to follow me on Twitter at Reverie Crime Pod. Facebook, Instagram, and even Tumblr at Reverie True Crime. Remember, stay safe, be aware of your
0: surroundings at all times, and take care. Officers drove to the home in Redlands, and just as they arrived, spotted a black SUV driving away. In unmarked cars, they followed the black SUV as it headed back toward San Bernardino, The time was now approximately 3.08 p.m. just four hours after the mass shooting. A patrol sergeant was alerted of the suspects and pulled up behind them, flashing his lights and letting them know there was police presence and to pull over. The driver of the SUV didn't comply and continued to drive. The sergeant communicated over the police radio that it looked like the driver of the SUV, as well as the passenger, were putting on some kind of vests. By this time, there were officers from the San Bernardino County Sheriff's Department present as well as the Redlands Police Department. The San Bernardino County Sheriff's Office tweeted out that anyone in the area of San Bernardino Avenue should shelter in place. The Twitter account continued to provide information to the public, a practice that was used by the Boston Police Department after the marathon bombings and proved to be an effective way to distribute information and, correct, misinformation. So there were two suspects inside the SUV, which was a black expedition. A man who was driving and a woman in the back seat. The SUV turned onto San Bernardino Avenue with the police still on their tail. Suddenly, the back window shattered as the woman inside began shooting at the police cars behind her. The SUV continued past Richardson Street and came to a stop. The woman inside opened the passenger side door and began firing shots from her place on the floor of the back seat. Police fired back. The man driving the SUV exited the vehicle and began firing while taking cover behind his open car door. He then started to move around, still shooting, while officers took cover behind their cars, firing back. The male was finally shot in the leg and then the upper body. He fell to the ground where he dropped his rifle and tried to continue firing with a handgun, but it jammed. He was hit with more bullets, including one to the head, and he finally collapsed. The woman in the SUV was still firing and bullets from the officers were hitting the car and her. She took a total of 13 bullets before stopping her gunfire. When the gunfight ended, over 175 officers had responded to the scene. 24 officers shot at least 440 bullets at the SUV. The man and woman had fired at least 81 rounds at the officers. Armored vehicles arrived on the scene. The SUV needed to be searched for explosive devices. A fairly new piece of equipment was brought in, a device called a Rook, which was a motorized battering ram that could get close to the vehicle to take a look inside. It moved towards the car to see if the woman was still alive. She was not. Inside the car, they found over 2,000 rounds of ammunition. There was also a blue bag filled with medical supplies and a trigger intended to detonate the explosive devices left at the Inland Regional Center. Once at the morgue, it was discovered that the man had a total of 25 wounds, while the woman had 15, two of which were to her head. With the killers dead, there was still an investigation underway. What was the motive? Were there plans for other attacks, and were others involved? Who were these two? The investigation revealed that the pair were a married couple and that Farouk was 28 years old and an employee with the San Bernardino Public Health Department who had been attending the event at the Inland Regional Center. He had left the event at 10.30 a.m. and returned, half an hour later, heavily armed. He had carried out this attack with his wife, 29-year-old Tashfeen Malik. On that morning, the two dropped their infant off with Farouk's mother, telling her that they needed to get to a doctor's appointment. Their baby had been celebrated by Farouk's co-workers months earlier at a workplace baby shower. According to ABC News, Mustafa Kukoo, the director of the Islamic Center in Riverdale, where, where Farouk worshipped, said he was "quote withdrawn a bit and didn't mix with people easily." The FBI conducted an investigation of the pair's home, a place they were renting from an older couple. A dozen explosive devices were found at their home. There were components to make bombs, as well as ammunition, and they had tried to destroy their computers and phones, but hadn't been entirely successful. One device, an iPhone owned by Farouk and issued by his employer, could not be accessed by the FBI due to the security on it. The FBI, in turn, reached out to the national security agencies to break into it, but they were also unsuccessful. Next, the FBI reached out to Apple to create a new version of iOS that would disable the phone security and then the FBI could break into the phone. However, Apple stood by its stance that they never undermine their own security features. Long story short, there was a lot of back and forth, but eventually the FBI were able to access the phone and found that there was nothing of importance on there, nothing related to the attack or any accomplices. After the FBI's investigation on December 3rd, media started showing up and entering the home of the two killers, some without permission. It was reported that Inside Edition had paid the landlord money for entry into the home. And once that door was open, other media outlets began filing in. They brought microphones and cameras into the home, some broadcasting live literally from the living room. MSNBC received criticism for holding up photos and identification from the home, directly into the camera, revealing personal information of the shooter's family members. The home was a media circus, to say the least, with dozens of cars and camera equipment on the lawn and in the home. And reportedly, citizens off the street were beginning to walk into the home like it was a tourist attraction. Anderson Cooper called the whole situation bizarre. According to CNN, Farouk was a U.S. citizen who met Malik on an online dating site. They communicated online for a while before Farouk went to meet Malik in person in Saudi Arabia, where she lived after a recent move from her home in Pakistan. The pair became engaged, and Malik became a permanent resident of the U.S. on a fiancé visa. In the first week of the investigation, police struggled to establish a clear motive of the shootings. There was no indication that Farouk's job was in danger or that he had any particular beef with any of the people at his company event. What was known was that the couple were not set out on a suicide mission. During the police chase and subsequent shootout in the street, Farouk and Malik did everything possible to take the police down and to ensure their own survival. They were luckily outnumbered, but what their ultimate plan was is still unknown, and unless they wrote out their motivations in journals or a manifesto, most of the theories are pure speculation. It was theorized that the two had been radicalized, as evidenced on their electronic devices, and that they had communicated with each other regarding jihadist beliefs. Over the years leading up to the massacre— FBI Director James Comey said that the two had been converting rifles into fully automatic weapons. They did target practice at shooting ranges, and there was evidence showing that they'd made preparations financially to ensure the care of the couple's baby, as well as Farouk's mother. Soon after the massacre, a friend of Farouk's was arrested in connection to the shooting, According to the Los Angeles Times, Enrique Marquez pleaded guilty to conspiring with Farouk to provide material support to terrorists and making false statements regarding the rifles he'd purchased in his own name using Farouk's money. The prosecution wanted Marquez to face the consequences of providing weapons to people who he knew were violent extremists. He was convicted and sentenced to 20 years in prison. About a year after the massacre, another motive was theorized by law enforcement, where they stated that Farouk and Malik may have been driven to kill over Farouk's required participation at the company's holiday event. Being that Farouk was Muslim, he had tried to refuse attending, and he and his wife were taking a stand. In episode 15 of Method and Madness, the Boston Marathon Bombing Part 2, I talked about The Psychology of Terrorism, published by forensic psychologist and professor at University of South Florida, Randy Borum. Randy had collaborated with other psychologists to come up with theories to understand the causes and motives behind terrorist behavior. Some key findings in the study were that there's really no one terrorist profile or one-size-fits-all situation. Terrorists are not generally considered psychopaths. Nor are there specific personalities or life experiences that can predict who will be a terrorist or why a terrorist came to be. What is a recurring theme is perceived injustice and a need for identity and belonging. This tends to go hand in hand with humiliation and abuse, according to the study, and are considered markers of vulnerability. Now, the obvious differences. In this case, is that the killers chose guns as their primary weapons, and while they did possess explosive devices, they didn't have a chance to successfully use them. Another stark contrast in this case is that one of the shooters was a woman, statistically very rare. So what do experts say about the psychology behind mass shootings? According to a CNN report released shortly after this case, two psychologists, Joseph Vendello and Jennifer Bossen, coined the term precarious manhood, a status that, quote, must be continually earned depending on how the individual's culture defines it, that for men, self-worth is defined by being a, quote, real man, and that this is a challenge that men in society have to continually measure up to. Doctors Vandalow and Boston say that men have a quest for dominance that can play out violently and a study conducted at Knox College by Jennifer Kleinsmith, Tim Casser, and Francis T. McAndrew tested whether men that interacted with guns had an increase in testosterone levels. Their research showed that males who interacted with a handgun showed a greater increase in testosterone levels and more aggressive behavior than males who interacted with the board game Mousetrap. The following is an excerpt from the study as published in a CNN report. In the study, each participant dismantled either a gun or the mousetrap, handled its components, and then wrote instructions for how to assemble the objects. Then we gave them the opportunity to put hot sauce into water that was going to be consumed by another person. The participants who handled the gun put in significantly more hot sauce and were also more likely to express disappointment after learning that no one was going to actually drink the concoction. Interesting. What about Malik? After the massacre in San Bernardino, James Garbarino, a psychologist at Loyola University in Chicago who's researched human development and violence, said female mass killers are quote, so rare it just hasn't been studied. There aren't enough cases. Now, while women are statistically less homicidal than men and Women generally don't carry out mass violence. There was one other case recently of a female committing a mass shooting at the YouTube headquarters in April 2018. She died of a self-inflicted gunshot wound directly after the shooting, but the motive is said to be discrimination for her YouTube channels, which contained workout videos as well as videos on animal abuse. Malik may have just shared the same beliefs as her husband, or had been manipulated into committing violence, or some other reason that we'll never know. In an article on the psychology behind mass shootings written by Peter Michelson, he noted that mass shooters share similar characteristics such as intelligence, being socially awkward and self-centered, and indifference towards others. They crave validation, notice, fame. Often, these negative feelings, Michelson says, accumulates until it results in bitterness, despair, and finally rage. The thing about mass shootings that's so difficult to analyze is the randomness. Take Columbine, the Virginia Tech shooting, the shooting at Sandy Hook, the Pulse nightclub shooting. What do these events have in common? They were all senseless, devastating attacks with no specific targeted victims. But they all resulted in the perpetrators dying before an arrest, trial, conviction, psychological examination, not to mention several other mass shootings conducted by killers who died at the scene. But even if the perpetrators had lived to see their day in court, there's no guarantee that a reason or motive would be revealed. No guarantee that the victim's families would be any closer to answers or that it would even matter, as it wouldn't bring anyone back. Thank you for listening. Stay safe out there. Here are the 14 victims that lost their lives in San Bernardino on December 2, 2015. Michael Raymond Wetzel, age 37. Nicholas Salasinos, 52. Damian Maynes, 58. Sierra Claiborne, 27. Daniel Kaufman, 42. Harry Bowman, 46. Benetta Bedbattle, 46. Isaac Amenois, 60. Robert Adams, 40. Tin Nguyen, 31. Juan Espinoza, 50. Shannon Johnson, 45. Yvette Velasco, 27. And the youngest victim, Aurora Godoy, 26 years old. Thank you for listening to Method and Madness. This is an independent podcast, so if you like it, go ahead and leave a five-star review. It helps new listeners find me. I'm on Twitter at MethodPod and on Instagram at MethodAndMadnessPod. There's a Method and Madness page on Facebook as well. To chat or discuss the episode, reach out to me at methodandmadnesspod at gmail.com. Method and Madness is a true crime podcast dealing with dark and disturbing subject matter. For crisis support, text HELLO to 741-741.